from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Soror Payman, a Baha'i from Iran whose paternal grandfather was a Zoroastrian in the 19th century. When her grandfather heard about the Baha'i faith, he wrote to Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, and asked him seven questions. In the Zoroastrian faith, seven is a very holy number. Baha'u'llah responded to her grandfather in a tablet called Seven Questions Answered. It has been recently translated into English and can be found in the Baha'i compilation Tabernacle of Unity. I started the interview by asking Soror to describe where she grew up in Iran, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up in Yazd, Iran. It's spelled Y-A-Z-D, Yazd, in the, is a southern city in Iran. And that's where I was born, into a family. I had two brothers before me and a sister after me. So four of us were in our family. My parents came from a Zoroastrian background which is an ancient religion started in northwest of Iran, somewhere between the time of Moses and Jesus by Prophet Zoroaster. And a large number of Zoroastrians lived in Yaz. Uh, we lived in a Zoroastrian neighborhood, which was, which was like segregated from Muslim neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Our family, although we were Baha'is, my parents and my brothers and all of us, became Baha'is through my paternal grandfather, whose name was Ostad Javanmard. He became a Baha'i during the time when Baha'u'llah was a prisoner in Akka. He lived in Yazd. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, he uh, was first-hand witness to the persecution and killing of innocent Baha'is in Yaz, and that what aroused his curiosity about this new religion, the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. He became uh, very interested. He asked questions, and uh, the response to his questions was, these Baha'is believe that promised one has appeared, and that's why we are torturing them and killing them, because they, are, they believe in a new prophet, a new manifestation from God, other than Muhammad and prophets before him. Mm-hmm. And so he, in his own way, he thought to himself, my grandfather, that yes, in Zoroastrian faith, we also are expecting a manifestation, a promised one. So that got him into thinking and investigating 
and trying to meditate and pray daily for God to show him the right path. Hmm. Through his prayers and the fasting and meditation, he came upon some Baha'is who got him involved into his independent investigation of truth, and he said, I like to communicate with the founder of the faith, and they told him he is a prisoner in Akka, in Turkish Ottoman Empire, Mm -hmm. in Akka. Baha'u'llah was a prisoner, Baha'u'llah the founder of the Baha'i faith. So my grandfather, Ustad Javanmar, wrote a letter to Baha'u'llah and sent it through uh, messengers, and he asked seven questions. In the Zoroastrian faith, seven is a very holy, sacred number. Mm. So my grandfather wrote seven questions in his letters and asked Baha'u'llah to answer them. And after receiving his response, he accepted the Baha'i faith. And uh, he went through a lot of persecution by his uh, co-religionists, the Zoroastrian, that he had to escape Yaz. And it's a long story. And this uh, tablet of Baha'u'llah is called Seven Questions Answered. And it's, uh, it's called Tablet of Seven Questions. Mm-hmm. And it's been uh, le- recently um, translated and published uh, in a collection of... Uh, uh, tablets of Baha'u'llah called uh, Tabernacle of Unity mm. by the Baha'i World Center. Mm. And so that's how our family became Baha'i through my uh, grandfather. So your grandfather was persecuted both by the Zoroastrians and the Muslims? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, mainly after he became a Baha'i, he, he was mainly followed and persecuted by his own co-religionists because he, he had a high position. That's why his name was Ostad Javanmar. Ostad means professor, a highly educated scholar, because during when he was a young person, he was selected by... A, by a representative from India, of a Zoroastrian community in India who was trying to help the Zoroastrian of Iran who were quite downtrodden and persecuted by Muslims. So these Zoroastrian of India sent a representative to Iran who traveled, and on his way he, he was in Baghdad and he met Baha'u'llah. His name was Manukji Sahib. He never became a Baha'i, but he was very interested in the faith, and he has received several tablets of Baha'u'llah who are in this collection that I mentioned, Tabernacle of Unity. So when he reached Yaz, this Indian Zoroastrian representative, he selected a few um, uh, individual youth who were quite outstanding and took them to India to be educated and come back to Iran, and uh, my grandfather returned to Yaz. My grandfather was among those youth he selected, mm. and he went to India and came back after a couple of years, and uh, they had a school built in his, for him, for my grandfather to be the administrator, the teacher, just run that school. So he was very highly respected in that community. And so when he accepted the Baha'i faith, 
all of his positions and his respects were taken away in such a way that even his family would shun him and he had to escape Yaz, go to Tehran, spend some time there undercover and hidden and then he returned to Yaz and he was never able to take back his position in the Zoroastrian community and even after his passing his body was very disrespectfully treated. Mm. So your grandfather's life was in danger? Yes. Can you describe how his life was in danger? Yes. His life was in danger mainly by his Zoroastrian community because, as I said, Muslim community were totally separated from the Zoroastrian community in Yaz. Zoroastrians lived in a segregated community, walled in you know, that they had their own business, their own shopping center, their own, everything was separated. And they had to be dressed even in a different color. Muslims could wear any dark color they wished to, but Zoroastrians were assigned just white and off-white color of clothing in public so that they would be quickly recognized that these are Zoroastrian people and for the Muslims to shun them and not get even close to them. And even when it was raining, even, the Zoroastrians were banned to leave their home because the Muslims believed that the rain would touch them and it might splash on them and get them unclean. So this was Zoroastrian. But then in their Zoroastrian community, when people like my grandfather decided to be independent and think for himself and accepted the new faith, they would treat him as a traitor in that community, especially because he was selected, he was very highly educated, and they, they did not have that many of high-class thinkers among them who were educated. So they needed him so badly to teach their youth and to bring up their education. And here, when he chose the new faith, they thought to themselves that he's a traitor and he's not, he's going to turn against their faith. It's just a prejudice, I call it. It's a destructive way of thinking that he was going to turn his back and to just leave their community and not teach them or not to serve them. It has happened to a couple of other among the Zoroastrians who became Baha'is and they were martyred. They were killed in their... One that come to my mind, his name was Master Khudabakhsh. He was another Zoroastrian, very highly respected person who became a Baha'i and they hired gunmen to have him killed. And they did that in public, actually. He was on a horse riding uh, to get to a place of his business, and uh, he was stopped and killed by gun, point blank. Mm. And that's what they were planning to do to my grandfather, and he decided to leave the city. Even his wife and his children, they would be, you know, taken away from him, kept in their other family members who were Zoroastrian to kind of pressure him to stop following this new faith. 
Did you experience prejudice directly as a Baha'i growing up? As a Baha'i growing up, again, because we were Baha'i family living in a Zoroastrian community and going to Zoroastrian school. I lived in Yazd until age 11, 10 and a half, 11 years old, so I went to primary school there. As a Baha'i, our parents encourage us, our Baha'i community encourage us to attend any religious class that they teach in school. So when I went to that school, it was a Zoroastrian-run school, so they would have a Zoroastrian holy book is called Avesta mm-hmm. and Gata uh, was being taught during certain hours of the day in the school so we are encouraged as Baha'is to attend because uh, we believe in progressive revelation and the holy books of previous religions are all accepted and respected by, uh, by the Baha'i mm-hmm. so we would take part and participate as children in those classes, but we would hear sarcastic sentences directed to us by the teacher, by the students. Oh, these traitors, they, they don't believe in Zoroastrian anymore. They are followers of no religion. They would make a lot of disrespectful, put it lightly, right. <laughs> comments that would go against us, or even walking to school. We would hear not very pleasant remarks by parents, by kids. So this is all I remember, nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you left Yazd when you yes. were 11. Yes, my mother, uh, I, I told you about my paternal grandfather who became Baha'i. And then my mother's father, who, whose name was Siavash Sefidvash, he, together with four other Zoroastrians, they were doing business in the holy city of Qum, that is very uh, well known these days, especially. It's a very religious holy city for Muslim. He was from Yaz, my maternal grandfather, but he was a businessman selling, like, fabric that was produced in Yazd. He would exported to other cities through the city of Qum that he had a sharing business with four other Zoroastrians. It was there that he was told about the Baha'i faith. He heard about the Baha'i faith. He never heard of it in Yaz. Hmm. So when he was in Qum, his curiosity was aroused by some Muslim background Baha'is who would approach him and tell him, did you know there is a Zoroastrian in Yaz who had recently become Baha'i, meaning my paternal grandfather? Mm-hmm. And so my uh, maternal grandfather became curious, and first he was, he was a very staunch Zoroastrian, and he didn't even want to approach this subject of reading or studying about uh, another religion, but this Baha'i that I told you he was from Muslim, Muslim background, he never gave up. He persistently chased my grandfather, telling him, did you know about this Ustad Javan Mat becoming Baha'i? Finally, my maternal grandfather, Siavash, he became interested to find out who this Zoroastrian is who has become a Baha'i to go and 
guide him back to the straight path, uh, according to his belief. So he got started on reading this tablet of seven questions that Baha'u'llah wrote to my paternal grandfather. And after reading a few of those answers, he accepted the Baha'i faith. This is my maternal grandfather. And from that day on, he became a very active believer in traveling teaching and telling others about the Baha'i faith. And he became a Baha'i pioneer in northern part of Iran. The city was called Gorgon. That was a Caspian Sea area. Gorgon was not far from the sea. And so my grandfather and grandmother moved there as Baha'i pioneers. And during their older age, and when they needed some help, my mother thought that we need to move to Gorgon and mm. be around them. The, uh, this time, my paternal grandfather had passed away. Mm. So our family moved to Gorgon to be in that area near my maternal grandfather. And also, there was not many Baha'is in Gorgon. And in the Baha'i faith, we don't have missionaries that are paid and substantially provided for. We, we have what we call Baha'i pioneers that we voluntarily and from the love that we have for the faith, whenever there is an opportunity, we take it and we try to settle in an area where not many Baha'is are there to live among people and acquaint them with the teachings of the Baha'i faith and to make them familiar about the faith. So that's, that's the reason for us, for my family. At that time, my two brothers were grown and they were in Tehran attending university. One of them became a medical doctor and the other one became a dentist. So they were quite far distance in age from me. So they were in university while I was 11 and my sister was 5. Mm. So two of us and my parents moved to Gorgon. Mm. Was life easier for you as a Baha'i in Gorgon than in Yazd? Uh, not really. In Gorgon, hardly there were any Zoroastrian except my maternal grandfather and his wife my grandmother, who were from Zoroastrian background and now Baha'is, and then my father and my mother and us, who are Baha'i, were Baha'is, but from Zoroastrian background. But everybody else in Gorgon, other than a few other Baha'is, were Muslim. And so the Muslim community there, so we were living in a Muslim neighborhood. We were in that area and my uh, grandfather being as uh, as i told you very outspoken very mm-hmm. brave person yeah, yeah and he uh, after finding the truth about the baha'i faith and believing in baha'u'llah he never calmed down let's put it <laughs> like uh, he never would be quiet he yeah. would any opportunity he would have he would spread the message of baha'u'llah so in Gorgon, he became a center of persecution among his neighbors and his people who came across him, you know. Mm-hmm. Would, he even got beaten up 
one time that he was almost he went blind he had a lot a lot of properties that during his young age he had acquired and part of the property he had built a Baha'i center and donated to the Baha'i faith and the other part another piece of lot he had given for the for the cemetery for the Baha'i so he was very involved in uh, helping the Baha'i community and well known in the Baha'i community so he was uh, quite uh, persecuted really a lot and for us when going to school we were surrounded by Muslims that you know there are beautiful Muslims there I mean mm-hmm. it's not not that they are all prejudiced but quite a large number of them are because they don't because of the lack of knowledge because of the uh, mis, uh, misinformation and lies and rumors that are not true as and are spread about the Baha'i faith for example one thing that is vivid in my mind when I was going through middle school in Gorgon and my school was all girls school in in that time and maybe today even more than that uh, girls and boys they don't go to school together and at the time all the girls most of the girls had a veil but they as soon as they would come to school they take it off and in the class you know they would sit without the veils even though the teachers most of them were male teachers Mm -hmm. Uh, but today i understand even in the class the veil is not taken off but we were only maybe a couple of baha'is in my class and the rest were muslim who would come to school with veil and uh, one time the teach one of the subject in our uh, class just like i was telling you in yas was about the holy book in zoroastrian faith because the school was run by zoroastrian when i was in yas in uh, gorgon this was a muslim run school it was a public school but it was muslim uh, faith was the accepted part of the teaching you know the subject Mm. so every day we had like an hour of Quran, the holy book, and the teachings of Islam being taught. And as Baha'is, we would participate again. You know, if, we were, if there were Christian or Jewish students, they would be excused from this class. But as Baha'is, since we believe in progressive revelation, we enjoy, and our parents and our community members, they always encourage the Baha'i children to participate and learn more about the holy book of other religion so mm. i was in this class and the teacher turned around uh, to two of us who were baha'is in that class and he said the baha'is don't believe in god mm. and uh, we just you know we were really shy we couldn't the teacher you know is telling there are like 25 students and he's very confidently saying baha'is don't believe in god and we turned around and quietly but shyfully said, yes, we do. No, you don't, you know. And the uh, children said, the classmates, they said, she's saying, they're saying they believe in God. What are you talking about? He said, I am telling you, and that's it. And then at the same, that same period of time, we were attending as Baha'i youth in a class in, run by our community, taught by a Baha'i scholar, 
about the existence of God. So I, <laughs> it was ironic that I was so fresh about the reasons, the logical reason that God exists. And I pursued the teacher. I said, I would be willing to come up and tell you one of the logical reasons that I know about the existence of God. And he was, was ignoring me. Mm. But I was so proud of my classmates yeah. that they all said, yes, let's Surur come up, sir. Mm. Let her come up and tell us about the existence of God, the proof mm. about existence of God. And finally, he was cornered enough that he said, okay, at the next class, hoping that I forget or maybe I am absent or something. He said, okay, uh, I agree at the next class. <laughs> so in the next week came and I prepared fully and I came and the uh, kid, he wanted to just ignore that. But the kid mm-hmm. said, let Surur come up and tell us about the proof uh, of existence of God. And he, he could not back up. He said, okay. So I went up there and talked for about maybe five, ten minutes, and mm. oh, they all applauded, and I remember fully that this was the way I, I said just briefly that God has to be the creator of the universe and this planet, because there is a will behind all these orders that exist in our world. Yeah. We have seasons that one after another follow each other. We never have a spring that is followed by winter, always spring, summer, winter, fall. Or a child grows from infancy to childhood to adolescent to adult. Never you change this. So these all order, everything has order. It's nothing like accidental that those who don't believe in God, they acknowledge. Mm. So I, I talked about this, and it was very, it's a bright star that shines in my head, even now that I am so much old, and mm. this is like 50 years ago, right. and, uh, and the kids, they all applauded, and <laughs> teachers did not even smile. <laughs> well, that's a sweet story. How long did you live in Gorgon? Yes, I lived in Gorgon. Uh, until I uh, finished high school, and then, then uh, at the time there was no college or university in Gorgon, so I went to Tehran, and Tehran has a university, but a large number of students would apply to enter the, the university. Therefore, having limited space, they have to take this entrance exam. That like four, at the time that I took that exam, 40,000 students mm. participated and they wanted like close to a thousand. Mm. And so I, I did not ha- get the chance to uh, attend the university that I wished so much to do. Yeah. And my brothers were very fortunate and very um, intelligent to attend. So I, at that time, my older brother, who was a physician, he was in Canada, and he was practicing medicine there. He invited me to go to Canada, and my parents agreed. And so I went to Canada and studied bilingual secretarial skill, like shorthand, bookkeeping, typing, 
I went to a business college in Montreal mm-hmm. and stayed there for about about a year. My brother was a Baha'i pioneer in an Indian reservation outside Montreal. He was the only non-Indian who lived among the Indian village, Indian reservation, and um, served that community, being the doctor, the physician in their hospital. Mm. And so after a year, almost a year that I stayed, I, 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 I would come to my brother's home weekends when I was off from college, and I would go back to Montreal uh, on a bus, and mm. I stayed with a, Baha'i, a, a, a Canadian Baha'i family, and uh, went to that college until I was finished, and then I came back to Iran and worked as a bilingual secretary. When you came back to Iran, where did you live? Uh, when I returned back to Iran, I moved uh, to a city in the west of Iran, close to the border of Iraq, uh, called Kermanshah. That's where um, I, the job I applied for took me, uh, and I was there for two years. I worked in a NIOC, National Iranian Oil Company, uh, as, a, as I said, as a bilingual secretary, and then I decided to uh, get married with my husband that you have interviewed a couple of weeks back, mm-hmm. and he was a physician who graduated the Tehran University, and at the time he was in New York. So I traveled from Kermanshah, came to the United States, and got married in New York, and stayed there for a year. Then we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. and our daughter was born there. There I studied midwifery and postpartum nursing because my husband is an OBGYN, so I got interested in female and uh, delivery room and uh, baby care. Uh, so I, I studied in uh, Pittsburgh, that area of health, that field, and then I had my daughter there. Who, she was born in Pittsburgh, and then we returned back to Iran, to Tehran, and the uh, funny thing is we ended up again in Kermanshah because there was a job for my husband there, and we went back to Kermanshah and, uh, with our daughter who was now like three years old, and our son was born in Kermanshah, and we stayed there for a year until uh, there was an opening for my husband in a Baha'i hospital in Tehran. So we returned back to Tehran, and we lived there for almost seven years, and then the situation turned by the revolutionary government that came to power, was beginning to come to power. They were not yet taken over that uh, we sensed the sense of emergency to, uh, that maybe it's time to just temporarily come out of Iran because both of our kids at that time now, this was 1978, they were both attending an international school where both Persian language and English language was taught and it was run by American and that school became a target of attack. Mm. So we decided that it was not right and it was quite dangerous to live. And for us, for female, it was a danger of going out 
they were pouring acid on the face of the females uh, if they were found not properly covered. Where I, when I was growing up, you could have cover, covering or you could be, you know, free of scarf or veil. Yes. But uh, so th- that's when we decided to come back to the United States even temporarily and when things calm down we go back but it's been ever since 78 we have been in this United States and um, have not been able to go back even for visit. Yeah. So, Soror, life must have been hard. I mean, why did you return to Iran if Iran was such a difficult place to live? When my husband, this was in, back in 1972, that we returned back to Iran. My husband being a physician, he was, he felt, as a Baha'i, we feel very, it is very important for us to serve, be of service. And he felt very obligated to serve in his homeland because he went to the University of Tehran which was a, paid by government. He never have to, it's opposite of the United States that the tuition and attending university is so highly costly. In Iran, it's all paid for. And so he, he was a very conscientious about going back home and serving in his home native land. And I, honestly, I, I really wish that we would stay in this country. And I even verbalized it, and I said we could go visit, come back. And he said, no, I, I really do need to help my countrymen. I have gained so much in my country. My country have paid for me to get my education and get my degree as a physician, and it's now time for me to go and serve in my homeland. And another reason that we went back was that the way of the practice in this country and the, the tension and the, uh, the lack of spirituality and trust between a doctor and a physician, he uh, really did not enjoy practicing his skill in this country due to that pressure that he had to do all these unnecessary tests and unnecessary lab work and x-rays and and liability that he felt, uh, that lack of trust between patient and doctor, that he did not, he would tell me, I do not enjoy the practice in my field in this country. I, I wish to go back. So that's the reason. That's some of a few reasons that I can explain. Right. But when you returned to the United States, where did you return to? When we returned to the United States in 1978, uh, we went to West Virginia. Uh, this is where we left uh, in 1972. My husband was in for a year in West Virginia, practiced with a, another doctor, and he. Uh, would call and write us anytime you are coming back you decide to come back please I have opening you welcome to come back to Glendale West Virginia so that's when 
we landed first and mm-hmm. um, my husband got back into the practice he had with this doctor in 1971-72 so he got back in 70 it was early 79 by the time he started practicing again mm-hmm. and then after a, a year or two we uh, decided to move to another part of West Virginia where there was more need as a pioneer, as a Baha'i pioneer, because wherever we have moved or lived, that is our first priority. That uh, is our, our wish and our love to share this message, this message of unity and oneness and peace that Baha'u'llah, the founder, have brought in the 19th century. Uh, so we feel this is a gem that we have and we like to share it. So that's why we moved in this, uh, to the southern part of West Virginia where there was not a single Baha'i there. And previous to us, a Baha'i family of American background were in that area and they were badly treated because of them practicing the Baha'i way of life, which is associating with all races Mm. and having black people come to their home and Mm. them communicating and associating with people of different races that they were shunned and they were were teachers and coaches in the school. Uh, They were dismissed and and, uh, sent back to their home in Massachusetts or somewhere in New England area. So we moved to that area, and some of the Baha'is were very concerned about us moving in that area of the West Virginia, south, south of West Virginia, called Hinton, near Bluefield and Princeton, West Virginia. But it was amazing that our background being Iranian, they did take us differently. They treated us, you know, the people in that part of West Virginia even though very careful around people from other countries, but they were warmer and more accepting of um, us being of other nationality. How did they treat you when you were starting to have meetings with people of other ethnic backgrounds like African Americans? They were quite uh, uncomfortable, let's put it. They were kind of looking at it this way. That's how I felt, like... You know, if it is good for you, fine, but just just leave us alone. They would invite us to go to the church, and they try to teach us that you need to be careful. You are too open, and you, you, you know, we, we used to put ad in the paper about the firesides, which is like open house or is an informal discussion gathering where we invite friends and uh, talk about religion and question and answer that people, things that they like to learn about the Baha'i faith. So we would put out about these firesides in the local paper and put our telephone number and would say public is welcome. They would be very apprehensive. You know, Mm. they try to scare us. Oh, you be careful, especially our neighbors would say, you know, this is uh, what you're doing is dangerous. How do you know who is going to show up at your door? Yeah. They were quite <laughs> acting 
that was kind of strange to us because yeah. from childhood we learn and we grow up with these teachings of the Baha'i faith that all people are like fruits of one tree, the leaves of one plant. And in Iran, we unfortunately don't see that diversity. Uh, Iran mainly, you know, the race is quite same. But when we come, the first time I experienced diversity was in Canada and then in the United States. And it's, it's so beautiful. And so the teaching that we learned and ingrained in us from childhood, it came to be practiced uh, among the community and the neighborhood we lived in. And so we really enjoyed meeting people and talking to, to people and going out to picnic with people of different backgrounds or inviting them to our house. But neighbors and those who were, you know, parents of kids that our kids went to school with, they were concerned about us. They kind of were fearful, and any chance they got, they said, you need to come to church. We need to tell you. They would send home a lot of these flyers and invitation and come to the, our door and try to guide uh, us. Right. So it sounds like the people were treating you sort of in a paternalistic way, whereas the New Englanders, they were just suspicious of them trying to change the way they believed. Yes, absolutely. You are absolutely right. And I tell you another, after uh, we lived in this town in Hinton that I I told you, New Englanders were there before us. We were there for about six years, but then again, the insurance for my mall practice insurance really skyrocketed, Mm -hmm. and being a small town, and my husband did not earn that much to have to pay this high, expensive premium, we decided to move to Virginia, and it was much different and much lower liability insurance. So we moved to Virginia, and here, again, we you know, live in a neighborhood where it was more diverse. And, but I never lived in an area as segregated as in West Virginia. Mm. But in Virginia, again, we were looking for diversity because, as I said, we... As Baha'is, we would like to practice what we learn and what we know about oneness of humanity. So every neighborhood we would, uh, or we would ask, or when we arrived in the new city, we were asking, you know, where, where are the African-American? Is there any other community, Indian or Filipino? And, you know, they say, oh, this is very safe. We don't have, you know, they would, they would, think as opposite of what we, we had in mind because we wanted to associate. They would think, oh, they are worried. You know, they yeah, would right. assure us, no, no, yeah. we are safe here. We don't have that many this, that, exactly. many that. And so uh, I remember in this one small town, we, I said, I was looking for African-American because yeah. as a Baha'i, again, we like to associate with all people. And finally, I found that there was an African-American culture center, which used to be a a one-room school, but now has turned into, during the segregation, where the blacks were their school and whites went to another school, this was a one-room school. 
and it had turned into a museum now. And so we found out about that and we called and wanted to go visit the museum. And they were suspicious of us. They were thinking to themselves, I imagine, oh, what is this doctor and his wife coming all the way from Middle East? What do they want to do with us? You know, so they did not take us seriously. They would say, yeah, you're welcome to come because you had to make appointment. It was not, they did not have enough funding to have it open all the time. Mm. So you had to call and ask for the museum to stay open certain time to go see. So they would say, like, come 5 o'clock. I remember it very well. Uh, it was a Friday and 5 o'clock come. We go 5, it was locked. We waited, we waited for half an hour or so, and then we left. And I remember I cried, I came home, I cried. I said, what's happening? Why, why they don't take us uh, seriously? They don't uh, accept us, something like that. I cried from the bottom of my heart. And it was really sad for me. And then it, it God heard that cry, it seemed. that A couple of days later, I... I was in a beauty salon getting my hair cut, and I hear, I overhear one of the customers telling the person cutting the hair, oh, I have a neighbor, she's black, and she just moved here from Boston, and she has no friend, very lonely, I feel sorry for her, and she was going on and on talking about her, and I was hearing that, and when she was ready to leave the salon, I approached her, she was a white elderly person and I said you know I'm new in this town too and I'm looking for people to meet and if she's alone I like to go visit her can you tell me where she lives and she said oh you know where I live so she gave me her own address <laughs> to go to her place and then she's going to show me and lo and behold next day I take off and I go to her place mm. and she tells me and I run to the house of this lady and I knock on the door, and the husband comes out, and I say, you know, I, I'm new in town, and I am Persian, and, you know, I'm talking like this. And right. as my husband said, we say, we talk Pinglish. It's a combination <laughs> Persian-English, not a straight English language. So this is the way I was talking to him. I said, I'm new, and, you know, I'm here I, because I hear you're new in town, and i like to meet you. And he was you know, kind of suspicious, what is this mm. lady want from us, you know? Right. And then I hear from inside the voice of this lady saying, who is that? And the husband said, I don't know, this lady is saying she's new in town. She said, come on in. Meanwhile, the other lady must have called her mm. to tell her that, you know, this lady, I'm sending her over. That's why she was ready for me. She said, come on in. And that was the opener. God heard my cry. Mm. And this lady was just like a wonderful sister. Mm. And she passed on two years ago. Mm. Her name was Jenny. And she became such a accepting, loving sister mm. that she totally put that veil that was the veil of suspicion in her community that, as I told you, they did not come to open the museum for us because, mm. you know, they didn't know us. Right. And so she was an open door. She got mm. us into all the activities of that museum, and we attended their meetings, my husband and I, and 
we started the race unity picnic in that town every year in June. That black, white, all other nationalities, they come together and mm. celebrate the diversity of human race. Mm. So, Soror, what are you doing now? Good question. I, I was involved with the literacy program also. In, started in West Virginia in 1982 that I became a volunteer in learning how illiteracy is prevalent in especially rural areas where we live. So I have enjoyed doing that work. It's hard for people when they see me first that I'm a Persian and I speak, you know, crooked English and here I am there volunteering to tutor one-on-one reading and basic reading and writing and math and stuff like that. So I would go to the library and uh, I I enjoy that. Sometimes I I tutor like the people from other countries who Mm. come. It's uh, English as second language. I get Mm. uh, have training in that field Mm -hmm. and that's my main uh, involvement or work as a pink lady in the hospital, volunteer work in the hospital. And now at this time I'm in Florida visiting my daughter and having grandchildren get Mm -hmm. me involved in enjoying the grandkids and teaching them the Persian language. Mm. I I have uh, turned into a teacher (laughs) (laughs) at this stage of my life. Are you involved with Health for Humanity and the Tahereh Justice Center? And yes, we both my husband and I, we have not been involved uh, physically uh, until now, uh, mainly through contribution and receiving the newsletter and information of the activities that is going on. But my husband being going uh, to be retired fully soon, we plan to both become more active in to be physically more involved, either to traveling abroad. We both have been to China, but not through this program, but just on our own. I traveled to China for the International Women Conference and stayed there for three months as a student of Chinese culture and enjoyed that very much. And my husband also came and studied acupuncture and acupressure and so maybe there comes a need for him and for myself I would love to travel to other countries or even in this country become more involved in hand-on service Mm. well Soror thank you so much for your interesting story Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for this opportunity. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that interview with Soror Payman, a Persian Baha'i now living in Virginia who had left Iran because of her religious beliefs. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
associate therefore in this great human garden even as flowers grow and blend together side by side Flowers grow
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.